Well, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're going to pick up our study. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. Matthew writing, he, he uh, writes, The same day the Sadducees, who, can't, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, speaking of Jesus, and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. They, they probably refer to this woman as the black widow. Uh, verse 27, last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, on Sunday mornings, we're... We've been engaged in this ongoing study through the Gospel of Matthew, taking a close look at uh, the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, I think and I trust that you guys are just like me, in a lot of ways at least, you know, in that, you know, you're in love with Jesus. I am so in love with Jesus. And I trust you are too. I can't get enough of him. And, you know, the more I know about him, the more... I want to know about him. I want to know all about the things that he taught. I want to hear all the things that he said. You know, I just want to take it in. And with every turn of the page as we study God's word, you know, it just fuels the fire in me to, to know him more. You know, it creates this greater hunger in me to know him more, to draw closer to him. It just, you know, it, it, it causes a greater thirst. I just can't get enough. It stirs me to go deeper with him, to surrender my life to him in, in greater measure because all that we learn of him is just so wonderful. I mean, oh, our Lord is just so amazing. And it just makes me again want to know him even more. And it's my prayer that we'll, each of us individually, and certainly as a church, that each of us would never, ever turn to the Bible and cease to be astonished by what we learn of God. You know, that we would continually be in awe of the revelation of God and of uh, his heart towards us, the great love that he has, that he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins, who, again, willingly came to lay down his life that we might be saved. I mean, just talking about it just makes me want to, oh, the love of God, the love of God, so rich, so deep. May we never tire learning about it, hearing of it, or 
seeking to know it more. As we come to our study this morning, we can't forget that Jesus is actually just a few days away from the cross. We're literally looking at the last days, the last events of Jesus's life here on earth. And as I've mentioned in the last few studies, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem happened on the very same day that the Jewish people were instructed to select their Passover lamb. And as after they selected that little lamb, you know, they were then to examine it. They were to watch it, to observe it, to scrutinize it for the next four days to ensure that it was spotless, to make sure that it was perfect, that it was without blemish. It was to be inspected for four days to confirm that it would actually be an acceptable sacrifice. John, or sorry, Jesus, who John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, is now being watched and he's being observed. He's being scrutinized and examined, you know, by the religious leaders. And they, they, they test him four times, you know, and that all occurs between the triumphal entry and the cross, the four days that uh, are between those two times. And what they're doing is they're unwittingly, unwittingly fulfilling scripture, making sure that Jesus actually is, proving that Jesus actually is an acceptable sacrifice, you know, uh, offered to God for the sins of the world. So the first examination of Jesus came when the Pharisees asked him in Matthew 21, 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied to the Pharisees saying, I also will ask you one thing, you know, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And because they refused to answer Jesus, right? He said to them, well, neither will I, uh, you know, uh, tell you by what authority I do these things. But then Jesus goes on to answer their question through the three parables that we've studied, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked vine dresser, and the parable of the wedding feast. It was through these parables that Jesus revealed to the religious leaders that their rejection of God and their disobedience to God, right? That their rejection of Jesus as the son of God, the heir of all things, you know, it was, that's what they were doing. That's what they were engaged in. You know, he also revealed to them through the parable of the wicked vine dresser that he was aware of their scheming and their plotting to murder him. Nothing gets past him. And the parable of the wedding feast, he revealed to the religious leaders their failure to accept God's invitation, making light of God's invitation uh, to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus, with the king's son. You know, it was insulting to God. It is not only insulting, but it would result in them being cast out of the kingdom. And Jesus revealed to them that the kingdom would be taken away from them and then be given to tax collectors, harlots, sinners, and outcasts that were willing to repent and willing to accept that free gift of salvation, willing to accept that invitation of God and be saved. And Jesus also showed them in that parable the religious leaders could not possibly get into the kingdom of God based upon 
their own good works and human efforts. The second of the four examinations of Jesus we looked at last week. After their first failed attempt to trap Jesus, the Pharisees, you know, they retreated and they began to plot how they might entangle Jesus in his speech. So what they did was they sent spies to him to watch him, to listen to him, you know, pretending to be righteous, you know, to just see if he would trip up, see if they could use something against him. And they came and asked him a very difficult question. And that difficult question is found in Matthew 22, 17. And their question was, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They carefully crafted this question thinking that it would provide them with either an accusation that would result in the Romans arresting Jesus uh, as an insurrectionist because he was encouraging people not to pay their taxes, or it would uh, you know, cause him to be discredited in the eyes of those people that were following him. The people that were following Jesus believed him to be the promised Messiah, and their mistaken understanding of the promised Messiah is that he would come and throw off the oppression of Rome, free them from that oppression. If Jesus were to say that they were to pay taxes to Rome, then the religious leaders would accuse him of being a disloyal Jew, a Roman collaborator, and he would be discredited in the eyes of the common man, and they would cease to follow him. Either way, to the religious leaders, they seemed that they thought that this would be a... Uh, win-win. And they thought for sure, you know, we got Jesus now. There's no way he's going to be able to slip out of this one. But as we saw last week, their uh, attempt failed when Jesus marvelously told them to give back to Caesar that which was his, you know, that which bore his image. He told them, pay your taxes. And at the same time, he said, give back to God that which is his, that which bears his image, right? As the image bearers of God, he's communicating to us that we're to surrender our lives to God. All that we are, all that we ever hope to be, everything that we have needs to be surrendered to God because you know what? It's all his anyway. At Jesus' answer, the disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, along with everybody else that was hearing this conversation, everyone that was in the crowd, they just marveled at Jesus' answer. Just, wow. Again, Jesus is just so marvelous. He's just so amazing. Now, in the verses that are before us that we're looking at this morning, this is the third of the four examinations. And in verse 23, it says the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Now, we've seen the Sadducees a couple times now in uh, this, our study through Matthew's gospel. The first time was back in Matthew chapter 3, when Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to John the Baptist and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You know, it was then that the Pharisees, along with the Sadducees, traveled down the Jordan Valley to see what John was doing down there in the Jordan River. And you'll remember when John, uh, John saw many of those Pharisees and Sadducees coming, he, he 
cried out to them, saying, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? I mean, John, he didn't candy coat it, did he? Matthew also records another encounter that Jesus had with the Sadducees back in Matthew chapter 16. And it was then the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Jesus said that they were hypocrites because um, they were suggesting that if he would produce a sign for heaven, a sign from heaven, then they would believe in him. They demanded that um, he perform this sign or miracle as a proof of whom he claimed to be, and that is the promised Messiah. And they made this demand in order to test him, Matthew says, and they weren't seeking a reason to believe in him. They were actually seeking an excuse not to believe in him. And Jesus called them hypocrites because outwardly they were giving the appearance that they were honest seekers, had honest questions. And they wanted to appear that they were willing to weigh the evidence, you know, and give Jesus an honest chance to win them over, you know, but they just needed a little more uh, evidence to consider the things that Jesus said and taught. But Jesus knew that that wasn't the case. He knew they were just trying to trap him. And Jesus' response to them was, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus said that he would give them a sign, but it would be a sign of his choosing. And that sign would be the, his resurrection from the dead. The funny thing is, maybe I should say, the hypocritical thing is, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in signs. You know, the Sadducees, they only accepted the Torah as the authoritative word of God. They only received the, the books of Moses as genuine, authentic scripture. They believed that only the first five books of the Bible were inspired by God, and they rejected all the rest. They rejected the historical books. They rejected the, the prophets, the writings of the prophets. They rejected uh, the writings of David and uh, Solomon, right? The Sadducees were being hypocrites because they didn't actually believe in the supernatural at all. They didn't believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe in the soul of man. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in a final judgment. And they, and they didn't believe in eternal rewards, right? And they certainly didn't believe in angels and demons. And they claimed, you know, that Moses, he never wrote about any of these spiritual things. The Sadducees, Unfortunately, like so many people today, when they read the Bible, when they read the Word of God, they just overlook the things they don't like. Because you know what? Moses, he repeatedly wrote about the supernatural. He wrote about angels. He wrote about God doing uh, amazing things contrary to nature. Another word for that is a miracle, right? For instance, Moses, uh, Genesis 19, Moses wrote of two angels that went down to Sodom and ultimately destroyed the city. In Genesis 28, 
Moses writes about Jacob's dream, which we commonly refer to as Jacob's ladder, where, you know, he, he writes about angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. You know, it's mind-boggling to think that the Sadducees could overlook something like the parting of the Red Sea, <laughs> the water gushing out of the rock, you know, manna falling from heaven. You know, Moses wrote about the supernatural. You know, he wrote all about the supernatural. To say that Moses never wrote about it, it's just, I don't know what you call it, willful ignorance or something. It's crazy to me. At least, you know, maybe it's not crazy to you. It's crazy to me to think how far people will go in order to reject God's word. And that's what the Sadducees did. And that's what made them Sadducee. I know it's a bad joke, but everybody has a right to hear that joke one time, this side of heaven, right? Which the Sadducees didn't believe in anyway. Anyway, just so you're aware, the Sadducees, they were a, a smaller group. They were fewer in number than the Pharisees. But they were the liberal wealthy, religious elite. The Sadducees made up the bulk of the chief priest. And the high priest himself was a Sadducee. And they rejected the idea of the resurrection. And that's why they sought to kill Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead, John 12, 10, right? I mean, in their defense, if you're going to reject the doctrine of the resurrection, you know, you can't have somebody who's been raised from the dead, walking around. It just doesn't look good. So they, reject, they rejected the resurrection. And also, they resisted the teaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we read, Now as they spoke to the people, as the apostles spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Their reject, the rejection by the Sadducees, their rejection of the supernatural in general, but specifically in regards to the, uh, the uh, resurrection, it might have actually been fueled by the fact that the, the Pharisees, they entertained, you know, just silly ideas regarding the resurrection. Right? The Pharisees would argue whether or not a person would be resurrected, clothed or naked. That was a big deal for them. They'd go back and forth, you know? And if they were resurrected clothed, would they be resurrected in the clothes they died in? That was another big deal, right? They even argued over whether a person would be resurrected with the same infirmities that they died with. The reason being is if they were resurrected and that person wasn't resurrected with those same infirmities, then they wouldn't be the same person. The Pharisees also believed that all Jews would be resurrected in the Holy Land. So if a Jew died, was buried in a foreign land, well, you know, their bodies would roll through these underground caves and caverns until they just all gathered underneath the Holy Land where they could be resurrected. So again, 
maybe the Sadducees' uh, rejection of things like the resurrection stemmed from foolish arguments of the Pharisees. You know, maybe that's the case. However, what other people say or do is never a justifiable reason to reject the Word of God. We're going to be responsible for it. In verse 23, he says, the same day the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him and asked him. So the Sadducees come to Jesus in their attempt to discredit him and his ministry. They come to Jesus the same day that the Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians, pretending to be righteous, hoping to trap him in something he had to say. And you think after the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, were uh, not able to trap Jesus and were somewhat publicly humiliated in their attempt to trap him, you think the Sadducees would give it a rest. But no, they don't. They go for it. And again, that's a stark reminder to us. It needs to be a reminder to us, you know, that the enemies of Christ and the enemy to our soul never quits. They never give up. Our adversary, the devil, is relentless in his efforts to try to trip us up, wear us down, discredit our witness before others, to make us ineffective for the cause of Christ. He hates you. He hates me because he hates our Savior. Now, we want to observe that their attack is not against Jesus, right? They don't accuse Jesus of any wrong, but their attack is focused on doctrines found within God's word. The attack is against the fundamental truth of the Bible. And what people don't understand is that when you attack the fundamental truths of the Bible, you're attacking Jesus and the very God who inspired the scriptures. And again, it's true today too. When people reject or attack the fundamental teachings of the word of God, their attack is actually directed at God, the God of the word. In verse 24, they come to Jesus saying, teacher. They call Jesus teacher, but they don't come to Jesus hoping to learn anything from him. They don't come to Jesus with a, a teachable heart. They come to Jesus with wicked intent. The Sadducees come to Jesus in their pride and arrogance you know, thinking that they're the expert. And they came to Jesus saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. After they address Jesus as teacher, they present him with the basics of what Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 25. This is the basis of their hypothetical question. Now, what they're referring to is called the uh, leverate marriage uh, written in Deuteronomy 25 by uh, Moses. The word leverate, it comes from the Latin word liver, which means simply a husband's brother, right? It has nothing to do with the Levite tribe, right? The custom was if a husband of a woman died without leaving a male heir, his unmarried brother or if in the case there wasn't one, his nearest male relative would marry his widow. And the first son that uh, was produced from that union was given the name of the dead brother and was considered his child. 
And the purpose of this custom was to preserve the man's name and prevent the extinction of his family line. You know, in a nation like Israel, where family inheritance was, you know, a really big deal, it was important that each family had a male heir keeping the family inheritance intact. It was considered a, a huge disgrace for a man to refuse to take his dead brother's wife and raise up a son to keep his name alive. So they use this teaching of Moses to frame their ridiculous question in order to disprove the idea of the resurrection. Verse 25, they say, Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. And, you know, I can just see it in my mind. These guys, they just think they got Jesus right where they want him, right? You know, right where they want him. They're going to disprove the resurrection with this hypothetical question. And I wonder if they didn't, you know, uh, continue what they have to say in verse 38 in a very condescending tone. Maybe the, the Sadducees, they're looking at each other, trying to hold back the snickering, you know, just thinking they really got Jesus. And they say, therefore... <laughs> In the resurrection, whatever. Whose wife of the seven will she be? For she had them all. You know, I mean, they, they spring this trap. It's just ridiculous. They thought that this question demonstrated just how absurd and irrational the idea of the resurrection is because no one could tell them whose wife, uh, whose husband this woman no one would be able to tell whose wife she would be. <laughs> Sometimes I just get twisted up, you know. You know, whose wife would she be? Would she be the wife of the one she married first? Or would she be the wife of the one she married last? Would she be the wife of the one she loved most? Or would she be the wife of the one she lived with the longest, right? Since no one can answer these questions, the Sadducees, you know, thought that the resurrection was just a ridiculous impossibility. The Sadducees, what they do, though, is they make the mistake many people uh, make looking at spiritual things. They're coming to conclusions regarding spiritual truth utilizing uh, worldly wisdom. Nicodemus, he did it. Jesus told him, hey, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus's response to Jesus, you recall, says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking physical. Nicodemus looked at spiritual truths in physical terms and declared it's impossible. How could it happen? And it's a common mistake people make. And Paul tells us why people make these mistakes. Right, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know them because they're spiritually discerned. Right? Only spiritual people, only people in whom the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in their heart are able to receive, discern spiritual truths. And since the Sadducees and 
the other religious, uh, other religious leaders, you know, and even people today reject Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life, right? They remain spiritually blind to the truth and the left with only worldly wisdom to, to utilize, right? So spiritual truths make no sense to them. It's all foolishness to them. And again, we want to observe the tactic here uh, being used by the enemies of Christ. And we have to remind, uh, uh, remember that there are many people listening to this conversation. There's lots of people, a crowd of people hanging out, you know, listening to Jesus' uh, dialogue with the Sadducees. And the hypothetical question posed by the Sadducees didn't come right out and deny the truth. This question is seeking to undermine the truth, right? That's how the devil works. You know, subtle attacks, seeking to portray God's word as absurd, ridiculous, foolish, impossible. And in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, and I tell you what, I'm just so struck. I'm just so struck by how loving and how patient Jesus is. He, he knows what they're trying to do, to do. He knows that they're trying to trap him, right? Trying to discredit him, right? He knows their hearts are closed to anything he has to say. It's closed to the truth. And yet he's willing to dialogue with them. He's willing to teach them. And what does that tell you about Jesus? You know, if he's that loving and patient with his enemies, how much more loving and patient is he towards those who have turned to him in faith? And I think that this is one of the most subtle attacks of the enemies, probably one of the most common attacks of the enemies when we're faced with a difficult situation and our faith falters. The devil comes in and he says to us, you know, I don't believe you. You, you, you got to be kidding. You call yourself a Christian? Really? Don't even bother going to God now. Not after what you've done. And he tells us that we've crossed a line and somehow God is through with us. That he wants nothing to do with us. And in the wisdom of the world, you know what? I got to admit, it's a pretty good argument. It makes sense to me, Satan. You're right. But you know what? That's never the case. Never the case. Never the case. If Jesus is loving and patient with his enemies, you know what? He's infinitely more loving and patient towards those of us that have turned to him and placed our faith in him. You know, the Bible clearly teaches that he knows our frame, that we're but dust. And he's full of compassion towards us. And he loves us with an everlasting love. And he's never going to leave us or forsake us. If we're ever faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You know what? If you're here this morning and you're one of those that, you know, struggles with the love of God towards you, whether or not, He's on your side, you know, whether or not he's ready to receive you back after a, a failure or a foible or whatever, whether or not he has a plan for your life, that it's a good plan, 
You know, you may think that God's against you. You know what? Let this be a word to you this morning from the Lord. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than you could ever know, more than you could ever love anything. He loves you. And it's not just something that pastors say. I get tired of hearing that. That's just what pastors say. No, that's what the Bible teaches. He's patient, kind, gentle, long-suffering. He understands what you're going through, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. Receive that from the Lord today if you struggle with that. Well, verse 29, Jesus answered, said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says that the Sadducees, they're an error, right? It's an error to deny the resurrection. Anyone and everyone who denies the resurrection is an error, Jesus says. And their error, the Sadducees' error, was a byproduct of two things. One, not knowing the scriptures. And two, not knowing the power of God. You know, the Sadducees, they didn't know the scriptures. They knew the books. They knew the words, right? They knew the words found in those books, but they failed to know the true meaning of those words, right? They didn't know the power of God, his power to overcome death and give life. The Bible teaches that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 says exactly that. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth. And those are just a couple of examples of many, many verses that say the same thing. The Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, knew that Jesus came from God and claimed to be God. They knew that Jesus claimed to give eternal life, right, to his followers, and, and that they would never promise, uh, never perish. That was a promise of Jesus, right? And the Jews, in general, recognized that it was only God that had the ability to give life, to give eternal life, right? They also knew that Jesus, without any debate, raised people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son. And, you know, again, Lazarus, raised from the dead, you know, they're running around trying to kill him, to get rid of him. And yet, because they did not know the word of God and his infinite power, they were an heir. They judged what God was capable of doing based on their understanding and worldly wisdom. And that's a tremendous mistake for anybody to make. How important to you do you think the Word of God is today? How important is the Word of God to us today? How important do you think it is for us to know the limitless power of God today? Right? We have a great need, especially today, right? to know God's Word and to understand His power. Because if we do not, we will be in error, right? We will limit God. We'll limit his work in and through our lives. If we don't know the scripture and the power of God, then we'll never experience the fullness of God and the relationship he desires to have with each one of us individually. We'll never be able to pray effectively, expectantly, you know, in a 
urgent situation and a desperate situation asking God to move if we don't know that he's capable of that. Right? The depth of our relationship, the blessings that we enjoy in our walk with the Lord, the understanding of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, it requires us to know the scriptures and the power of God. Just like the Sadducees here, if you don't know the scriptures and the power of God, how can you possibly know God? That's what Jesus is pointing out to them. It's an absolute must for us to know the Bible and what God has to say to us through the Bible. It's an absolute must for us to spend meaningful time on a daily basis studying God's word, hiding his word in our heart, getting to know it so that it can be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Right? It's an absolute must for us to know God's word because it's the primary way that God has chosen to speak to us as his children. It's an absolute must for us to know God's word because it's his word that reveals his power. Right? It's through God's word that his glory and his majesty, his love, his grace, his mercy is revealed to us. It's an absolute must for us to spend meaningful time on a daily basis just sitting and waiting on the Lord to speak. And if we fail to do so, we'll never grow in our knowledge or understanding of God, of Jesus Christ, our Savior, or the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll be constantly vulnerable to error if we don't give ourselves to the word and the knowledge of God's power. We'll be babes spiritually speaking, blown about by every aberrant wind of doctrine that blows through the church. Let me ask you, how satisfied, how happy are you with the knowledge of God's word and your relationship with God today? How satisfied are you? You want more? You know what? There's so much more for us to possess by seriously giving ourselves to seeking to know the scriptures and the power of God revealed in them, right? We're called to be men and women of the word. We're called to be diligent in studying the word of God so that we can present ourselves approved uh, by God, not ashamed, you know, uh, rightfully dividing the word of God. That's where the depth of relationship with the Lord begins, in the word of God. And that's where the depth of relationship with the Lord continues to grow. It's in the word of God, right? If we fail to give priority to knowing God's word, to discovering the power of God revealed in it, our walks with the Lord will be significantly less than what he desires for us. Our walks will be weak and stunted, anemic, and powerless. Verse 30, Jesus says, for in the resurrection, Jesus starts his, uh, his answer to them by affirming that there is indeed a resurrection just by that simple phrase. For in the resurrection, Luke's gospel re records Jesus saying, Luke 20, 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, right? The Bible teaches that everyone will experience resurrection. 
right? The resurrection of the righteous, that's called the first resurrection, and the resurrection of the wicked, right? The first resurrection is to life and an eternity spent in heaven with Jesus, those that are that Jesus uh, refers to as worthy, right? They're counted worthy, not because of anything they've done, not because of any outward righteousness, but because of the grace of God making salvation through placing your faith in Jesus Christ, right? Um, that's what makes us worthy, coming to God, confessing our sins, asking Jesus to forgive us and become our Savior, and then giving our life to him and following after him with all of our heart. Those that reject Jesus as their Savior, they're also going to experience the resurrection and then stand in judgment, found guilty before the Lord, and then cast into the lake of fire. You know, that's the penalty for sin. And that's called the second death. Everybody's going to experience a resurrection. It's just one is a resurrection to life and one is a resurrection to eternal punishment. Please, if anybody's here watching online that, you know, hasn't yet given their heart to Jesus Christ, man, I would implore you, cry out to him today. Receive salvation today and be counted worthy of the first resurrection. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 30, and says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He goes on to address their mistaken understanding of heaven, right? The, the, they thought that heaven, you know, they thought of heaven in just earthly terms, right? Uh, it was another reason for their error. Heaven is not a continuation of this world. In heaven, there will be new and greater relationships which will outshine, you know, the physical relationships that we enjoy here on earth. Because in heaven, there's, no longer any death, well, you know, there's no longer any need for marriage because it's through the marriage relationship that God ordained that the world would be uh, populated, right? Sex within the marriage relationship is intended to be wonderful, joyful, amazing. And it was intended to be the way uh, that mankind was to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so again, since there's no death in heaven, there's no need for marriage or procreation. Right? And again, heaven is not a continuation of an ex or an extension of this world. The relationships that we will enjoy in heaven will be fuller, richer, greater than we, we could ever even come close to imagining. Right? The relationships we enjoy in heaven are just going to be tremendous. The relationships we enjoy in heaven will far surpass any and every physical relationship we enjoy here on earth. In heaven, things are going to be totally different. What's it going to be like, Gare? Well, I don't know. I can't imagine it. Aren't you listening? We can't imagine it. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. 1 John 3, 2, the apostle of love, the apostle John, he writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. These earthly relationships one day will be done away with because we're going to see him as he is. And we'll enter into something even more glorious than what the marriage relationship here on earth was intended by God to be, right? We need to avoid thinking of heaven in physical ways, physical earthly terms. Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. He says that we'll be like angels of God in heaven. He doesn't say we will be angels, as some people believe. He says we'll be like angels, right? So we need to ask ourselves again, well, what are angels like? Again, I don't really know. I haven't been in heaven, you know? But what does the Bible reveal to us about angels? Hey, the angels are pure, spiritual. They're free from sin, right? They're in the presence of God. They be, behold his face and his glory. They sing his praises before his throne. They're overwhelmed with his holiness. They're eternally consumed by his beauty, right? And they obediently do the will of God. You want to know what the wonderful thing about being a Christian today is? Hey, we can get a jump on all these things, right? We can begin to experience these things and become familiar with these things right now. We can get a jump on this relationship with the Lord through knowing his word, right? Meditating on his word and thinking great thoughts about a great God, exercising our minds, trying to just comprehend, trying to just fathom, you know, the limitless powers of God, taking steps of faith, trusting him to meet us, right? Being consumed with doing his will and walking in obedience to him. One day we'll be like the angels in heaven, but our roles will be completely different than the angels because the promise to us as believers is that we're going to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom here on earth. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. I'm looking forward to ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. It's going to be great. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Boy, that's our future. That's reality. You can take that to the bank. That's what's ahead of us. Jesus goes on to address the Sadducees' misconception regarding the resurrection and life after death. Verse 31. But concerning the resurrection, he says, the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has uh, was spoken? Sorry, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jacob asked him, have you not read? Right? Many of the religious leaders, they were completely ignorant of the word of God because they were focused on the oral traditions and the teaching of the rabbis. <clears throat> they elevated that above <clears throat> the word of God. Jesus tells them that God had spoken to them that there was, in fact, life after death. And Jesus takes them back to the word. 
The attack of the enemy is always defeated by going to the word of truth, the word of God. And we need to take every doubt in our heart back to the word of God. Jesus takes them back to the burning bush passage in Exodus. By the way, this passage is found in the second of the five books of Moses, right? Jesus takes them back to one of the books of the Bible that they received as authoritative. He meant them where they were at. They should have been familiar with this passage. Uh, They may have read it, but they didn't understand it. Maybe they read it before, but they didn't mix what they read with faith. Maybe they read it before, but they were lazy readers in reading it. And you know what? We need to be careful when we come to the Word of God because each of those things can befall us too, leading us into error. Verse 32, Jesus says, Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus takes them back to Exodus 3, verse 6. And then Jesus states, with all the authority of God, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He shows them God had used the present tense saying, I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was their God. Right? Jesus reminds the Sadducees that 500 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed from the scene, God said that he is currently their God. Right? By using the present tense, God's, uh, in God's identification of himself as their God, the implication is that they're still alive. He's pointing out to the Sadducees that, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. In this passage, Jesus proves there's life after death. He substantiates the idea of the resurrection and that heaven is a reality. The word of God is so amazing and it's uh, able to quench all doubts and questions you know, the enemy wants to hurl at us if we'll just take it to the word of God. Mark, I love Mark. He adds uh, the comment that Jesus makes to the Sadducees, Mark uh, 1227. He said, uh, is not the God, you know, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. I mean, he doesn't candy coat it either. I like it. Again, it's a great mistake to deny or reject, you know, the idea of the resurrection. Paul speaking about the resurrection to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you know, if there's no resurrection, And if in this life only, you know, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. You know, because he says, if there's no resurrection, then our faith in Jesus is empty. It's futile and it's worthless. If there's no resurrection, then we remain in our sins with no hope of salvation. If there's no resurrection and We're living a life looking forward to an eternity with Jesus in the presence of God. Well, guess what? You're to be pitied if there's no resurrection. How sad is it to believe something that's completely false, to live a disciplined life, hoping for something that's never going to happen? How sad is it? But Paul continues in that chapter, and he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 
But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Man, Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof to us that he is an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. That he is the spotless, perfect lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. He is risen from the dead. And he is our forerunner who's passed through the heavens, the first fruits of all who have died in him. And he is our promise. Should we die before he returns, that we too will live and experience the resurrection unto life. Jesus is answering the wisdom of the world, right? Silencing the Sadducees. Man, the wisdom of the world cannot stand up to the wisdom of the word. And the Sadducees have no comeback. They were unable to argue with the logic of Jesus and the truth of God's word. It was indisputable. Do you think that they turned to Jesus at this point and placed their faith in him? Uh, we can only hope so. We're not told. Sad fact of the matter is most people at, at this point, they just want to dig in their heels and be even more determined to resist. Their attitude is, please, don't confuse me with facts or logic or indisputable evidence. I've already made up my mind. You know what? Those people, they don't want to look foolish. So they just insist they're right regardless. And you know what? It's foolish beyond belief to reject Jesus as your Savior. Verse 33, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. People hearing Jesus uh, rightfully divide the word of truth. They were just astonished. And the Greek word used here, translated astonished, it means to be astonished. It means to be amazed. But interestingly, <clears throat> it means to be knocked out with a blow. You know, hearing Jesus refute the foolishness of the Sadducees, it was just so amazing. It was like Mike Tyson came out and knocked everybody out with a punch. You know, just amazing. This is the fourth time that Matthew used this word translated astonished in regards to Jesus. Matthew 22, 22. Uh, our last Bible study, the, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and were refuted, Matthew says that everyone that heard Jesus marveled. They were left in wonderment, right? You know what? That should be the effect of a daily living relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And the word, that should be the effect that the word of God has on each one of us. Just amazement. Every time we open it up, like it knocks us out with a punch. It's so amazing, right? Are you in awe of God this morning? I think about it. Serious question. Are you in awe with God this morning? Are you awestruck? Are you left breathless at the promises God has for you in Jesus? You know, it's a great mistake to go through life and not know the scriptures or the power of God, right? Not knowing them will make us vulnerable to all kinds of error. And it can't be a casual knowledge that we have either. You know what? We need a deep, living, life-altering knowledge 
of the Word of God. That's what we need. That's what we're desperately in need of. Right? We need to see Jesus and the Word of God is so very precious, more necessary than our daily bread, right? more important than the air we breathe. We need to let the power of God, the power to which no obstacle can uh, withstand, right? We need to let the limitless power of our loving, gracious God in heaven, the understanding that nothing's too hard for him, no mountain that he can't move out of our life. We need to let that understanding and the promises found in God's word comfort us in all our troubles and tribulations, right? Knowing that he's working, right? He's present. He's faithful beyond belief and that he's going to see us through to the end. And then at the end of this life, you know, he's going to receive us in heaven to live with him, be consumed with his glory and praise us forever, right? The things of this world are passing away and they're going to give place to an even more glorious reality. And I want to encourage you this morning. You know, I want to encourage all of us this morning, myself included, hey, let's make a fresh commitment to know the word of God. Again, not just a casual knowledge, but a deep, abiding, life-altering knowledge of the word of God. Let's let God's word shape us and mold us into the men and women God wants us to be, right? Let's commit ourselves to daily being washed in the water of the word, washing away the filth of this world from our lives. That's the way we need to allow it to work in us, right? to know and experience the depth and fullness of relationship, of fellowship that Jesus is longing to have with us. Let's pray. Lord, that's my heart's cry. That's my heart's cry. It's not just words for me, Lord. I want to go deeper. I want more. I'm a typical American, Lord. I don't want much. I just want more. I want to plumb the depths of your love, Lord. I want to understand your infinite power. I want to see it working in my life. Lord, I pray that same thing for my brothers and sisters that are here, those that are watching online. Lord, would you move mightily in us, Lord, as we pray, Lord, would you, would you meet us? Would you make our hearts your home as we sang? Lord, would you just fill us overflowing? Give us a great, deep, abiding love for your word, Lord. Reveal yourself to us through it. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.